we are going to be continuing looking at spiritual gifts in the life of the church this morning. And I hope that over the past couple weeks you've um, been encouraged and you're beginning to think more about how God desires to use you in other people's lives in this local church. We saw last week that God has given, verse 7 of chapter 12, to each and every believer spiritual gifts to serve and minister in His name. Now the pathway to taking an active part in the life of church, it's really two things. The pathway to taking an active part in the life of the church is number one, connection to the body. And then number two, availability to be used in the body. That you're connected to God's people. God didn't save us to be isolated Christians. God saved us first and foremost to himself and then to be connected to the family of God. And the family of God that we are most visibly around is the local church that God has placed us in. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit today. But then availability to be used in the body. In availability, first and foremost, to the Lord. Lord, would you use me? Would you help my agendas not to be overtaken, not to overtake what you have for me? And in availability to the Lord, Lord, would you use me? Here am I. Send me. Use me. Is an availability then that the Lord can use you. And how does He use you? He uses you as He ministers in your heart to minister to others' hearts. And again, God uses us first and foremost among His people in the local church. So last week, we looked at the first of three main truths regarding spiritual gifts. In verses 1 to 11, we have seen truth number one regarding spiritual gifts, that spiritual gifts point us to the gift giver. Who is the gift giver? It is God Himself. God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In understanding that our eyes need to be pointed to the Lord as the gift giver, we saw in verses 1 to 3 that Paul laid down a proper foundation for our understanding spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, they lead us into truth, and they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. The individual that wants to be used by the Lord is not only going to know truth, that Jesus is Lord, but is going to live truth. That not only is Jesus Lord, but Jesus is my Lord. He is my master. I desire to follow him. Christianity, the Christian faith, it's not a a consenting to facts. That Jesus died, Jesus rose again, Jesus is Savior. Those are all true, but if we just admit to those facts, that's not saving faith. Saving faith is a personalizing of these things. That Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my Lord. I want to follow Him and to submit myself to Him. And in our Christian life, it is a continual turning from sin to Jesus as Lord. Just as when we first got saved, our life is a continual life of repentance and faith in Jesus. Not that we're getting saved all over again, but that we are continually submitting to his lordship. Well, we also saw in verses 4 to 6 that our eyes are pointed to God when we see him as the source of all spiritual gifts. And and we looked at verses 4 to 6, that all three members of the Trinity are mentioned as as having a part in, in the equipping of God's people. And then last week we saw in verses 7 to 11, 
that spiritual gifts, they display the unity of God, they display the unity of the church, but this unity is encased in diversity. And we looked at several spiritual gifts that are mentioned in verses 7 to 11, how each one is doing something different, but verse 11, it is that those gifts are empowered by the same Spirit who apportions or gives to each one, doesn't leave anybody out, to each one individually as he wills, as he desires. And we're going to see that truth emphasized again this morning. So today we're going to look at, at spiritual, the spiritual gifts, truth number two. First of all, the reality of spiritual gifts point us in a vertical direction. They point us to the gift giver. And then once our eyes are pointed to the gift giver, number two, spiritual gifts point us horizontally to one another. So you look around the room this morning, turn your head to the left, to the right, and, and as far back as you can go. Go ahead, do it. You have freedom. Some of you still aren't doing it. <laughs> spiritual, the reality of spiritual gifts should point us to each other, to one another. Can I ask you, when's the last time you thought about another individual sitting in this room in a meaningful way. We are called to minister to each other. So this morning, once again, we are going to see that we are to cling to what truly matters. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, as Paul seeks to take this church in Corinth back to the basics, so we are trying to go back to the basics and in this passage, what we are going to see that truly matters is the reality that we are called to connection and service together as one body. And we're going to see both of these aspects in our text this morning, both connection to the body and service in the body. So as we begin, let's just start with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, I ask for your spirit to be at work. Lord, I think it's so amazing in my life and in our lives how often we overlook our need for the Holy Spirit to be at work. Lord, at work in our hearts, at work through our lives to others, we think we can go it alone. We think we can do something as a solo project. Lord, we need you. Lord, as your word is declared, I pray, God, that the truth of your word would sink into our hearts and, Lord, would bring us back to a reality of how good you are, of how sufficient you are in every area of our lives. And how it's, it really isn't about us. It is about you. It is about your glory. Father, would you fan the fire that you have lit in our hearts. Lord, if there is one today that has never turned to Jesus Christ as Lord, I pray, God, that today would be the day. That they would let go their sins, let go of their sufficiency of self, and turn to the one and only Rescuer. Lord, we ask you to be at work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Spiritual gifts point us to one another. It's easy to live within our circle of one. No one can bother us when we're in our circle of one. It's easy to be consumed with the needs of self that many times are not needs at all. They are simply selfish desires. But God is always going to, first of all, stabilize us in the reality that He is sufficient in our lives. 
that his goodness and love covers us. And when we have that truth and that stability, our eyes then are naturally geared outward to others. And we see in verses 12 to 13 this morning that the church is one body. And, and this is nothing new. Uh, we've heard this preached before. You've, uh, if you've been raised in the church, you've heard this. Um, uh, we've even read it in our text. But we're going to focus in, in verses 12 to 13, that the church really is one body. In fact, in verse 12, Paul gives an illustration of the physical body. Now again, place yourself in the first century, a church like Corinth, riddled with division, and Paul writes this letter, and it's sent to the church, um, and an individual gets up, and he is going to read this to a church filled with strife. Look at verse 12. For just as the body, he's talking about the physical body, is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. This would be an indirect, scathing rebuke to the church at Corinth because they were, frag- they were as fragmented as you can be. But this would also be an encouragement to the church that Paul is literally here saying, look at your own body. Now, I didn't Google. I should have. I just now thought of it. How many body parts are in the human body? You could look at that up on your phone and have an answer right now, but we're not going to do that. But Paul gives the illustration of a physical body. He says, there's one body, the body is one, you don't say, you know, someone's walking around, oh, there's two bodies in there, that, you know, that guy's, that guy's two bodies. No, one body, but many members in that body. And then he repeats it in reverse, there's many members and one body. You see, again, Paul is trying to emphasize to the church in Corinth, and the Holy Spirit is trying to emphasize to us this morning that there is unity and diversity in Christ's body. Now, the end of that phrase, so it is with Christ, that may at first glance seem confusing. What, what, what does he mean, so it is with Christ? Uh, really, what you have is, is shorthand that Paul could be writing, so it is with Christ's body. So Paul is making an illustration that here's the physical body, one body, many, member, uh, many body parts, and so it is in the spiritual body, in Christ's body. One body, many members, many parts. Do you remember when, when Saul, uh, Paul, before he, his name, uh, when his name was Saul, before it was changed to Paul, you remember how Paul, who by the way is the author of 1 Corinthians, you remember how he started out? We read of him in Acts. What was he doing? He was persecuting the church, right? In fact, he was very zealous for that. I wonder if Paul has that in mind as he's thinking about the unity of the body that Christ's spiritual body is composed of Christians. And uh, I wonder if he's thinking about Acts 9-4, when he saw that bright light on the road to Emmaus, and it, and it says he fell down to the ground, and he heard, literally he heard the voice of Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So what is, what is, Paul, what is Saul doing? He's persecuting individual Christians, but in doing that, Jesus, because believers compose the spiritual body of Christ, he says, you are in reality persecuting me. You see, we are the spiritual body of Christ. When we are causing division or have divisions within us, 
It is an affront to the very person of Christ. In fact, in, uh, this past summer, had a uh, discipleship group uh, with, with, with some guys, and we were talking about the church and, and the unity of the church and, and what our mindset is to the church. And, and in our study, as we were discussing these things, you know, the, one of the questions that was posed with, how are you thinking and, dis- and talking about the body of Christ? Because to be, to be bitter, to be talking negatively um, about the body of Christ is talking bad about Christ Himself. In fact, the church is Christ's bride. And imagine if you were talking to someone else negatively about their bride. I don't think that if you were the husband that found out that there was negative talk about, about your wife that you would take too kindly to that. The same way uh, is true that when there are divisions within the church, it is not simply an affront to an individual, it is an affront to Christ himself. Because it is his body. In fact, in the Lord's Supper, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul uh, talks about you're coming to to the Lord's Supper not discerning the body of Christ. There's divisions among you. So to emphasize the fact that the church really is one body, he gives a physical illustration that just as your physical body has lots of body parts, but it's one body, so it is with the spiritual body of Christ. And then in verse 13, he's going to give the doctrine of this spiritual body. What undergirds this spiritual body? Now, who do we naturally get along with? We naturally get along with people that share our personality type. They share our temperament. They share our hobbies. They share um, the things we get excited about. They share the things that maybe we are passionate about. But there is something deeper that unites the one body of Christ. There is something that is more sure and steadfast than all of those things that I just mentioned. Verse 13 gives us the glue that holds together the body of Christ. Verse 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This unity, it goes against that which might cause division Paul starts with Jews or Greeks, uh, many individuals. Of course, you know that there was a great divide between those who were Jews, those who were not Jews. You read Galatians, you see that. Amongst these type of religious and racial barriers, this common baptism that we read of in verse 13, it goes beyond that and brings together individuals. In a social context, slaves or free. There were slaves, uh, the majority of the population in many cases in the first century were slaves of one type or another. But yet all are brought together on common ground in Christ. Every single distinction that we can think of has been overcome by what we read in verse 13. Specifically, what we read of here at the beginning of verse 13 is a common baptism. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. You may say, well, Pastor Adam, what are we talking about here? What we are talking about is a spirit baptism. I want to unpack this a little bit, but 
Uh, maybe your translation, it could read, for by one spirit we were all baptized. Uh, the ESV says, for in one spirit we were all baptized. Uh, there's lots that's written about, is this, does the Holy Spirit do the baptism or does someone else? Well, we see this same phrase in the Spirit dealing with baptism in several other places in the Bible. I just want to bring your attention to two places, and it will help us figure out what is this Spirit baptism. John the Baptist says, said in Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with or in the Holy Spirit and fire. So here we see that Jesus is doing a spiritual baptism into the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, in verse 5, Jesus himself says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The Old Testament promises that a new covenant would be made and the Holy Spirit would be poured out on new covenant believers. So what we are talking about is that it is Jesus who does the baptizing into this one Spirit. Now, now who is the Spirit? It is the Holy Spirit. Again, we see the Godhead at work. When does this baptism into the Spirit happen? Well, it happens at salvation. What does it look like? Baptism into the Spirit is that we are transferred from, from the realm of darkness into the realm of light, like Colossians says, and as believers, we are given the Holy Spirit. This is not talking about some sort of second blessing that happens after salvation or anything like that. This happens at salvation. That we are delivered from darkness to light and we are made alive by the Holy Spirit that indwells us. Remember Jesus said, it is good for me to go away because if I go away, the Comforter will come to you. The Holy Spirit is what brings unity to all of us that are of different race, of different background, of different personalities and temperaments. It is the Holy Spirit who is at work. So when we allow divisions into our life, you see how this is a knock against the very thing that Jesus has accomplished for us. The, the doctrinal spiritual reality that we are bound together in one body by the Holy Spirit. This, there's much more at play than simply, I'm offended at that person. I don't like what they did. There is to be a seeking of unity, not at the expense of truth or overlooking sin that needs to be dealt with. But I think all too often we are forgetful that we are a part of the one body. Now, if you were a first century Christian, and you read verse, uh, uh, and you're hearing verse 13, in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Your mind would not automatically dissect this spirit baptism that happens when we're, uh, we are saved and we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Your, your mind would not automatically make a dissection between water baptism that we observe and spirit baptism. In fact, for a Christian in the first century to hear of a believer who was not baptized, they wouldn't be able to comprehend that. So we have to also 
keep in mind that water baptism is the physical expression of what has happened to us spiritually. This verse is not saying that when we are baptized in the water, there's some sort of magic in the water that then the Holy Spirit comes upon us. But it is saying here that on a spiritual level, we have been baptized into the Holy Spirit, we've been given the Holy Spirit, we've become a part of the one body of Christ. Now the one body of Christ in the Bible, there's two senses to it. You have the universal body of Christ. And that is every single person who is a follower of Jesus. Doesn't matter if you're here. Doesn't matter if you're in Ethiopia. Uh, Tim and I, you know, it was great being able to minister and to fellowship with believers that we had nothing in common with except for the cross of Christ and the Holy Spirit. That's the universal church. Now, every local church is a local manifestation or example of that, of that universal church. So in verse 13, as the first century mind would not make a sharp distinction between being saved and baptism into the Holy Spirit and water baptism, the two were kind of seen all as a package deal of salvation. Because those who were saved were baptized. We have to see that we are both in, in spirit baptism at our salvation, we now become a part of the one universal body of Christ. And as we observe the tangible water baptism that testifies to what God has already done in our hearts, that is an action that brings us into the local church. That is why we don't perform baptisms privately, you know, in the bathtub. No, it is a church. It is a church event ordeal. Because water baptism, just as spirit baptism says we are a part of the one body of Christ, water baptism says we are also entering into the local manifestation of that one body, the local church. If you want to write down, we're not going to turn there for sake of time, but Acts 2, verses 38 to 41, you can even read to the end of the chapter, it talks about those who heard the truth, they believed, they were baptized, and they were added to the church. So I hope that you can see here both the universal and the local church that is at play here. We are saved and become a part of the universal church but we are also called to be a part of the local church. And this is where God has sovereignly designed us to exercise our spiritual gifts in the local church. The believer that says, well, I'm a part of Christ's universal church, so I don't need the local church, that is simply not biblical. It's not right. We are called to be a part of the local church. Now, the end of verse 13 says, um, talking about that we were all baptized into one body. Um, and then it says, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. You may say, Pastor Adam, what, what, what's uh, Paul talking about here? Really, he's describing the indwelling of the spirit in two different ways. In terms of being immersed through spirit baptism, we're immersed into the spirit. And here he's talking about that we are drinking of that one spirit. We are indwelt by that spirit. You remember Jesus said in John 7, 37 to 39, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit 
whom those who believed in him were to receive. This is Jesus fulfilling what is said in Isaiah 55, verse 1. Jesus says, Come to me, and I will give you a never-ending supply of life. You will receive the Holy Spirit. So, as we talk about this key thought that we must cling to what truly matters, and what truly matters is that we realize we are called to connection and service together, what connects us is the work of Christ and the fact that we have the Holy Spirit. That is the bond of unity that we share. But I also then want to turn our attention to our service in that body. We're called to connection and service with one another. So if our eyes are going to be pointed outward, not simply upward, but then outward to each other, not only do we see that the church is one body, the high call to unity that we are to uphold because of what has been done in us and to us, but verses 14 to 20 show us that we are also to take reality of this fact that the body has many members. As verse 12 says, the body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. You may say, Pastor Adam, you've already said this many times, the body has many members, but Paul, like we've seen repeatedly in 1 Corinthians, he states something broad, and then he gets to the specifics of what he means. Same thing here. In verses 14 to 17, here's, an, here's a reality, here's an application that Paul gives us regarding the fact that the body has many members. This is one of those things that if we're honest with ourselves, we struggle with. We cannot compare ourselves with others. If it's true that we, have, we are one body, that there is unity that the Holy Spirit has brought about, but that does not negate the fact that we are different, that God has gifted us differently because we still deal with the flesh, we deal with sin, we are tempted to compare ourselves with others. Verse 14, look at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Now, if you're, if you're a teacher, if you're an English teacher and you're reading um, this letter, you may you may dock some points off of Paul because he keeps seeming to be repeating himself. I remember doing that, don't you? You kept kind of being really fluffy to get to the minimum page requirement. Well, Paul's not being fluffy here, okay? Uh, Paul is repeating this truth because the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, Paul knows that the Holy Spirit must grip the reader's hearts, both the original readers and us as well, with this truth. It's that important that the body does not consist of one member, but of many. In our carnal self, we would naturally say, whether we admit it or not, I wish the body consisted of one. I wish that everyone was like me. Because wouldn't we all do better and get along much more if everyone was like me? Don't we say that, whether we admit it or not? So again, Paul is reminding us that's not the function of a physical body. And if it's not the function of the physical body, how much more so is this not the function of the spiritual body. You see, variety is needed and necessary in Christ's body. 
I would say as, year, as the years go by, and they seem to be quickly going by, I can't believe it's already October, and can't believe that I'm 42 years old, the, the, over the hill, and then some a little bit. Time is going by. But, you know, I think it's a gift from God that as time goes by, I, I more and more see my inadequacies and the joy that everyone isn't like me. You know, when you're 20-some, you just think, you know, you can do everything and, you know, just let's have at it. And then as maturity sets in, you see, you know what? God's created me with limits. That is a gift of God's grace. Variety is needed and necessary. If everyone was like us, um, the, the church body would not thrive. Now Paul then goes into verses 15 to 17 to give some practical examples. We can laugh at, at these examples in some ways when you really think of it. Look at what he says. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand... I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. I just want to pause right here. This is kind of a, a uh, boo-hoo statement, right? In fact, as Paul gives these practical examples, verses 15 to 17, Paul is dealing with sort of a looking down on ourselves, Boo-hoo, woe is me, I wish I was gifted like that other person. Again, we're talking here about comparisons. I, I wish I was like that guy, I wish I was like that lady. Boy, I could more effectively serve Christ. If only I had that much money. If only I had a few less trials. If only this, if only that, woe is me. That's one way we can... Look at life, look at the church, look at ourselves. Now next, uh, or, uh, I'll be away next week, but in two weeks, Paul gives another set of examples starting in verse 21, and he reverses it. In that instance, it is ourselves looking down on others. Well, they're not really that important. So you have a kind of a woe is me mentality. Well, I'm just not good enough. And then on the flip end, Paul's going to talk about looking down on others. Can I tell you, no matter what side of the spectrum you fall on, both of these attitudes are sourced in pride. They're sourced in pride. They are sourced in self, whether you think you are good enough or not good enough. And they are sourced in a movement of focus away from Christ as our head. Both are sourced in pride. You remember, spiritual gifts are to point us to the gift giver, not to ourselves. I'm going to... Uh, um, Roger, hold off on showing that picture until I, until I explain a little bit here. But in verse 15, you have the foot saying, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. But Paul says, does that really make it any less a part of the body? You see, we can deceive ourselves with wrong thinking, and we can so get caught up in our minds that we lose sense of true reality. Have you ever had that happen to you? I know I have. You know, I'll have something rattling around my head uh, for a long period of time. And then, so I'll tell Rachel about what's rattling around in my head. And she's like, whoa, slow down. You've kind of lost sense of reality here. That's what's happening here. I mean, if the foot could talk and said, well, I'm not a part of the hand, so I'm just not a part of the body. Is that really going to make it happen? Not unless it... You get a cut and it grows gangrene, they cut it off, right? You see, what we, what we have here is what so often happens in our lives in the local church that if we are not careful, we lose our sense of reality, we start believing the lies of the devil, and it leads us to isolationism. You know, when people start to drift from the local church, they, you start to not see individuals. 
That is not the beginning of drifting. That is the end of drifting. Because the beginning of drifting starts within the mind and believing the lies of our own flesh and the lies, the lies of the devil. And then by the time it's outwardly known, it's been going on for a while. And Satan longs to isolate us and say, you know what, you're really not a part. And he tries to negate the reality of verse 13 so that we start to believe our own think, thinking and feelings. But then Paul talks about in verse 16 two other parts of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. So here we have a couple examples, the foot and the hand. I, I, I think Paul's using these analogies purposely because they often uh, go together. I mean, I know for myself, maybe some of you guys are like this, you know. I want that remote control, but I just don't want to use my feet to get up and get it. So what do I do? I tell my kids, hey, can you get me that? <laughs> the feet and the hands are connected functionally, right? Before you can grab something, your feet got to take you to get it. Your feet got to take you to the fridge to get the food out, the drink out. And Paul is saying how foolish the body is that two complementary body parts would be comparing themselves with each other and because of that comparison, they would both say, you know what, it's not worth it. Isn't that foolish? Or what about the ear and the eye? The, the, the senses go together, right? How sad it is for the ear to hear something beautiful without being able to see it. And many people deal with that today. Or for the eye to be able to see without enjoying the hearing of what the eye is seeing. Again, the two go together. But when the two are, are at odds, it is devastating to the body. We cannot say, because I am not this, I am not of use to the body. In fact, the way that many of us sometimes think of the church is, now you can show the picture, is like the body were something like this. How would you like to see something like that moving around? Now, unfortunately, Paul, Paul talks about... Uh, um, he doesn't talk about the nose here, but the nose kind of needs to be in there, I guess, to, to complete this version of what we can oftentimes, without realizing it, picture that the local church should be. Wow, I'm just not one of these key parts of the body, or I don't think I'm a key part of the body. So you know what? Let let those parts of the body serve the Lord here locally within these walls and outside of these walls. They're enough. And, and before you know it, you have a bunch of local churches that look like that. And they're supposed to make an impact for the kingdom of God. Both in our hearts here and outside these walls. Wouldn't that be foolish? But how often in your minds, in my mind, do we think by, by saying, you know what, I'm just, I'm not gifted enough to be used by the Lord, or I'm too busy with my own life to serve Christ in His body, I'm going to let other people do it, because, you know, God can't really use me anyway. And what we are saying to the body, again, the local presence of that universal body, the local manifestation, what we are saying is, you know what? What Christ died for is just not important enough. Wow. Let's keep reading in verse 17. 
Paul says, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? I like what uh, Andy uh, Nicelli says, kind of just puts it in different words. He says, if a body were nothing but an eyeball rolling around, that's a good mental picture for Halloween, right? If the body were nothing but an eyeball rolling around, it could not hear. If a body were nothing but an ear, it could not smell. Each body part is interdependent. I want you to highlight um, and get in your minds that word interdependent. We are called as a church to be interdependent. That goes against our American ideologies. What are we? We are, we are independent creatures. But Christ's church is called to be interdependent on one another. Paul's point is that each part of the body is important for a body to be healthy and to function optimally. So by application, I think of Romans 12.3. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. You know how we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think? By the woe is me mentality. I just can't, you know what? I'm really of no use to the Lord. No, you need to look to Christ and see that God has given you according to the measure that he has assigned to you. We can also think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Boys, aren't I important? Wouldn't it be great if more people recognized that or were like me? We are called to think with sober judgment. And as we close this morning, we're going to close with these last three verses. If we're going to see and recognize and and rejoice in the fact that the body has many members, we have to have a God-centered perspective of His body. Verse 18 says, But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. So no, uh, in answer to verse 17, the whole body isn't an eye. The whole body isn't an ear. The whole body isn't a nose. God has sovereignly arranged each part of the body. And look at the the end of verse 18. As he chose. That brings us back to verse 11. What he has already said. About the spirit who apportions. Who gives as he wills to each believer. Verse 18 shows us God's sovereign design of His body. It has the the picture of uh, verse 18, God arranging something. Another way to put that is God set this in place. The, the, The idea of setting a table for dinner. You're having an important guest come and you got all the silverware and everything strategically placed. God has not overlooked anything He has sovereignly arranged each member in the body. He has sovereignly gifted you. He sovereignly wired you. And He's wired you for love to Himself and love for each other. No member is excluded. Verse 19, we see the wisdom of God's sovereign design. If all were a single member, where would the body be? But reality in verse 20, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. You know what I'm so thankful for? I'm so thankful that God doesn't change who He is or truth because I struggle with it. Now, in the moment, I often wish, God, could you just do this differently? Could you just work in my life differently? Could you just change this 
truth that I'm thinking on for me. But you know, when all is said and done, I'm always so thankful. God, thank you that you do not change because of what I do or don't understand. Because we are still, God is not done in the work of salvation that he has done in us. There are always going to be difficulties in navigating life with other people still affected by the fall. There's always going to be people that rub us the wrong way. There's always going to be pride in our hearts or in others that gets in the way. But we do not negate what God has ordained, and that is life in the local church. Many people get offended and they say, I'm giving up on the church. And many times the, the, the church has done wrong things, but that is not a reflection of Christ. It is a reflection of our fallenness. The reality of verse 20 will be true whether we accept it or not, that there are many parts, yet one body. So as we close this morning, I want to ask you, are you desirous, are you willing to cling to what truly matters? And according to our passage, what truly matters is the truth that we are called to connection and service together as one body. Thank you.